We're still working our way through that basic theme. Esther is a story about God's covenant faithfulness in spite of his unfaithful people. You know, I suppose that's true. Uh, I I don't even suppose it's true. I, I know it's true in relationship to all of us as well, right? And you say, well, God is faithful to me because I'm perfectly faithful to him. Is that how it is? Yes, Andrew. (laughs) We know you better than that. Just kidding. (laughs) No, none of us are as faithful as we should be. That's the truth of the matter. But God remains faithful even in spite of ourselves. This is a story about God's providential care of his people, even though his name is not mentioned even one time in the book, which I think is indicative of the times in which they were living. It's not like they were really paying a lot of attention to God. They weren't. Uh, Just a couple of background slides here as far as uh, where we're at. Uh, you got the three sieges of uh, Jerusalem, uh, 605, 597, 586 B.C., and then the Babylonian captivity as the Jews were taken to Babylon for 70 years. Then they returned, uh, a few of them, just a small remnant, really, very small remnant in comparison to most of the Jews stayed back in Persia. But there was a, a decree uh, by Cyrus, the Persian king, permitting them to return in 538 B.C. Well... Here we are, it's about 50 years later, or no, more than that, 70, 100, I don't know how many years, what, 80 years? I didn't bring my calculator. <laughs> it's later, uh, 483 to 473 BC, the events in the book of Esther involving Jews remaining in Persia. So a small remnant has gone back here earlier, but these uh, events here really relate essentially uh, to those Jews remaining in Persia also has ramifications for those even who have gone back to the Holy Land, as we mentioned, as this too uh, was a part of the uh, Persian Empire. Uh, Timeline, uh, here's where we are. Uh, Third year of Ahasuerus, uh, Queen Vashti was deposed. And then the seventh year, Esther was made queen. And now we're up to the twelfth year, uh, Haman's plot hatched. And that's uh, where we pick up our study here tonight. As I say, this really is a story about God in the background, so to speak, who in reality was providentially controlling all things. And it's good to know that no matter what, God is in control. You know, it's real easy to get discouraged about circumstances sometimes, but it's good to remember God's in control. And sometimes in the darkest times of life, it's kind of easy to lose sight of that. Why am I so discouraged? Well, maybe I need to lift my eyes a little higher and just realize God's still in control of whatever's going on. Well, this storyline that we are studying, Esther, goes back to uh, the Amalekites and the Jews at the time of the Exodus. When the Jews came out of Egypt in the Exodus, the Amalekites attacked the weakest of the Jews from the rear because, as it says in the scripture, they did not fear God as seen in Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 19. Because of this, God said that one day the Jews were to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And then he specifically warned, you shall not forget. Well, fast forward about 600 years. And King Saul was made the first king of Israel, and God gave him an assignment early in his uh, kingly rule, and that is that he was to go and wipe out 
the Amalekites, as a matter of unfinished business, this is what God uh, determined. Uh, the Amalekites were to be wiped out. However, Saul spared the king of the Amalekites named Agag. Agag. Now, fast forward again, about another 500 years. And Haman, now having the second highest position in the Persian kingdom, is said to be an Agite, which I take it to probably mean he was a descendant of the Amalekites and King Agag in particular. Well, as such, he and his people were ancient enemies of God's people Israel, of which Mordecai and Esther were representative. So, uh, here's what we're looking at as far as timeline again. Appro- and this is just, you know, approximate dates. Uh, 1400 BC, the Jews attacked by the Amalekites. Boy, they were vicious from the rear. The, those that were tired and weak. No fear of God. And then uh, Saul comes on the scene, told to finish off the Amalekites, which God had said, don't forget, don't forget. Well, he spared Agag. And now... Here we are in 474 BC, and Haman plots to kill all the Jews, as we find in Esther chapter 3. And again, uh, he's probably a descendant of King Agag. Well, as you can see at this point, uh, there was about a 1,000 year history of bad blood between Haman's people, the Amalekites, and Mordecai's people, the Jews. Long history of bad blood here. And this is the essence of the story. And the story shows that God really is the faithful God of Israel in spite of their unfaithfulness. And that God really is faithful to his word and his covenant promises no matter what. The story is not so much about the Jews and the Amalekites as it is a story about the covenant God of Israel. And ultimately that is the big, the big deal in history. It's not so much about us. It is, but it's, it's about God. It's about what God is doing. This is what makes the difference in the story. As I say, it's really about God and his faithful covenant character. His faithfulness in spite of his people's unfaithfulness. Well, Mordecai the Jew, not only did Haman have a high position in the government, so did Mordecai the Jew. And uh, even though he had a high position, Mordecai, he was under this guy named Haman. He was under the Agite. And to honor Haman, the king had commanded that all were to bow in respect to Haman. But Mordecai, uh uh-oh, there was a line there. He was not going to do that. He absolutely refused. Consequently, Haman plotted not only on how he might kill Mordecai, but also all of his people, the Jews. Of course, not realizing that the newly appointed queen was actually Jewish herself. Well... In the first month of the year, Nisan, uh, through the casting of lots, Haman superstitiously decided that they would seek to carry out this murderous plot on the 12th month of the year. That's where the lot fell, the 12th month of the year, which was the month of Adar. Well, one thing remained. One thing remained. Haman had to get the king on board with his plan and put it in law. And that is where the story now goes. We pick it up, Esther chapter 3 and verse 8. Then Haman said to, the, to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. 
Their laws are different from all other people's. And they do not keep the king's law. The king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. He really had the king's ear in a big way. You know, we don't know exactly why he was promoted to such a high position. I, I think he was an ultimate suck-up for sure. Uh, he, he knew what he wanted and how to get there. And he's playing all the, the games, I'm sure. But here he's kind of talking into the king's ear. What, what, he's acting like this is really in the king's best interest. And notice he didn't even mention uh, specifically who these certain people were. He notes they're scattered about in all the provinces of this vast Persian kingdom. It is estimated, by the way, that there were about 50 million people living in the Persian Empire at this time. And some think that about 20% may have been Jewish. That's a pretty large percentage of of a particular people group. Uh, And that would mean, if that's true, uh, that there were about 10 million Jews in view. Whatever the actual figure, it was probably millions of Jewish people that were in view. Well, Haman uh, mixed truth with lies, which does often serve to strengthen a lie. You know, a, a lie mixed with a little bit of truth is, is, is more effective a lot of times than just a straight out lie. Uh, he was right in saying that their laws were different from that of other people. That's true. Uh, it is true that the laws of God for the Jews were that only God was to be worshipped, for example, and they were to have nothing to do with idolatry. However, it was really slander to say that they do not keep the king's laws. And be reminded here that the name devil means slander. It is what he does in an effort to destroy God's people. And he is good at it. He is is good at slandering people. And by the way, slander, how does it work? How does slander work? Well, it works through people. You know, it's not like the devil's got this little, he's invisible out here and he's making a speech somewhere. No, he works through his people. That's how slander happens. Uh, If Mordecai and Esther are anything to go by, the Jews were really largely prepared to assimilate. It's not like they were troublemakers over here. I mean, they were so ready to assimilate that for a long time, they didn't even know Mordecai or Esther were Jewish. That's how under the radar they were. They were not out here saying, whoa, we're different. No, no, they weren't. They were blending in. They were more than willing to assimilate. That's what we have seen in the whole story up to this point. Finally, it came to a point where, you know, Mordecai's not bowing for it. Uh, Haman, uh, that that agite. Nope, not going to do that. But uh, notice uh, even what God called for in terms of when they were in the captivity. Jeremiah 29, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the the spirit that they were to have when they were in captivity. He says in in verse 7, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. You know what? They were not to be rebel rousers, just causing all kinds of tension and discord. No. God says, uh, seek the peace of the city. Uh, where I've caused you to be carried away captive. So this is slanderous to say, you know, these people, they're just troublemakers everywhere. They don't keep the king's commandments uh, or the king's laws. No, they they did, actually. Uh, They were not there to make trouble. Well, Mordecai's refusal to bow in honor before Haman is now made to be representative of the general rebellion that's being put forth on the part 
uh, of Haman as far as what he is saying uh, is indicative of the Jewish behavior in relationship to the king's commandments. So Haman makes it sound like he's really concerned about the king's interests, concerned about this rebel people in the king's uh, kingdom. But in truth, uh, his ego burned against this Jewish man named Mordecai who refused to bow before him. And therefore, out of spite, he wants to destroy all the Jews. The long-hated enemy of his people, whom also just happened to be the chosen people of God. And so with this idea planted that there is this certain people who are disobedient to the king, Haman says, quote, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. Here again, we have, uh, we have two kind of ideas coming together. Slander and, and planting a, a seed of doubt in the king's head. Uh, you know, he's, he's putting this idea in, in Ahasuerus' head as far as this people is really bad for the kingdom. We need to deal with them. And uh, that's the way the devil works. He puts uh, slanderous ideas in the heads of people that are destructive. And it's very damaging to relationships. And he's very good at it. You know how the devil worked when he came to Eve, right? Has God indeed said, you're planting a little seed of doubt about the character of God. He's a slanderer. And that's what we have here. Well, here's his bold proposal. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So Haman suggested here that the king write a decree that all these people should be destroyed. And then to sweeten the idea, he volunteers that he'll pay 10,000 talents of silver to those who carry on the king's business. That's the uh, Persian uh, version of the IRS, right? Uh, He's going to pay 10,000 talents of silver to those who carry on the king's business that they might put it into the king's treasuries. I mean, it's going to take a while to put this kind of money into the treasury, I guess. And it was a large amount of money. This, in effect, was kind of a bribe, like I say, to to sweeten the deal, to, to have the king seal the deal, literally. Now, most commentators think that, that this offer is probably what uh, really sold the idea to the king uh, entirely. Uh, it's really a couple, uh, the, the strategy was two-pronged. I mean, uh, he's catering to his ego, like, hey, we got this rebel people that is a problem for you. And, but then he's also sweetening it with, hey, I'm, gonna give, I'm willing to give this money. I'm willing to give lots of money. The context here is the king Ahasuerus had just come back from fighting a costly war with the Greeks, losing very badly. It was a very costly war. And so the commentators, many of them, bring out that very possibly what's in view here is the, the kingdom was, the coffers in the kingdom were a little low because of the war. And so when he's offering this large sum of money, it's like, wow, that would be good for the, the kingdom coffers. Uh, I, I like that idea. Now, one historian said that the annual income of the Persian Empire was about 15,000 talents. So Haman was really offering to give about two-thirds of the annual uh, income that came into the kingdom, if that's true. And it was certainly a lot of money. Uh, Haman uh, evidently was an exceedingly wealthy man, very wealthy. 
A talent weighed about 75 pounds, so in view here was about 12 million ounces of silver. That tallies out to about $225 million in today's present currency, if I got this figured out right now. There's no guarantee on that. But uh, give or take a few million, $225 million. Uh, the point is, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. This incentive of the 10,000 talents was enough to seal the deal. The king's signet ring made an imprint, which really represented the king's official signature, and hence the power to authorize it. Well, possession of the uh, signet ring meant Haman now had permission to write up an official decree, a legalized decree, and sign it in the name of the king, making it official law. The end of verse 10 states a key premise in the book, saying Haman was the enemy of the Jews. By the way, this is stated five times in the book. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. So this becomes a showdown between God, who had called for the annihilation of the Amalekites, and Satan's instrument, Haman, who is now seeking to destroy the Jews. Who's going to be annihilated? Is it going to be the Amalekites or is it going to be the Jews? Who's going to prevail here? Is it going to be God or is it going to be Satan? Well, we know what the, the end of the story. But to be the enemy of the Jews puts one in a very bad position. Going back to Genesis 12, 3, where God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But it's a bad thing to be the, you know, the designation over your life is the enemy of the Jews. That puts you in direct <laughs> line of fire with the God of Israel. And that's where he was. Verse 11. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Now, verse 11 is a little ambiguous on the surface. It sounds like the king didn't take the money, saying, in effect, uh, keep the money and do with it and the people what you like. However, in view of chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 7, verse 4, it is more likely that the king actually accepted the money and was saying, go ahead and use it to do to these people all that seems good to you. That is probably the case. In chapter 4, verse 7, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And this is when he's interacting through the, through the courier, if you will, with Esther. Uh, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. That, that's still a sticking point here. It's not like, well, he, he, the money is no issue. No, it was. And then again in chapter 7, verse 4, Esther says, For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed. Sold. Uh, how so? Well, this money has been offered so that we might be destroyed. To be killed and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. <clears throat> Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss, etc., etc. So Ahasuerus had so little regard for life, he didn't even ask any questions about who this certain people were that were scattered throughout his vast empire. <laughs> just, just a little detail that he failed 
that he overlooked. Little did the king realize, as I say, that even the queen, according to this new edict, uh, was to be singled out and killed. It seems his whole thing was, show me the money and it's yours. And boy, that, that large sum of money, instantly he says, okay, here's my signet ring. Do what you want. Make it law. And sometimes wicked political leaders only seem to carry, uh, care about power and money. Mindlessly, Ahasuerus had just sentenced to death potentially millions of innocent men, women, and children on the altar of Haman's pride for the sake of money. They had indeed been sold down the river, so to speak. Verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. There it was. It was made legal and official in the king's name. It was exactly according to what Haman had wanted, had written up, and commanded. This order was then commanded and addressed to all the governing officials throughout the entire kingdom. Verse 13. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. You know what? That's clear. That's clear. You don't know, say, I wonder what the king's uh, ask, wanting us to do. It was clear. The command was that they were to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. You know what this is? This is barbaric. Ruthless. This was the legalization of full-out genocide. There was no mercy here, just cold, calculated murder. Legalized murder. You know... Hitler was not the first one to come up with this idea of a final solution, right? Old Haman was way ahead of Hitler. Same spirit, anti-Semitism. Let's kill the Jews, all of them. Note that. To destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Every last one of them. And it was to happen on a very specific day, one day. Namely, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And oh, as a P.S., all the possessions of the Jews were to be plundered as well. Uh, the order was to kill all the Jews, and then you can take their possessions. You can plunder them. That's what the idea of plunder is. We just take over and take your stuff. Hey, kill the Jews day! Take their stuff! That was the idea. That was the sense of it. You say, oh my goodness, how could any civilized society end up at this point with one man kind of driving this satanic thing? And by the way, the decree was made on the 13th day of the, of the first month, and it was to be carried out on the 13th day of the 12th month. You have to remember, this was a very superstitious society, 
And it seems that they really were kind of stuck on this lucky number 13, right? Everything's happening on the 13th. Uh, they're coming up and writing this thing on the, the 13th day of the, of the first month. And it's to be carried out on the 13th day of the 12th month. Well, in the providence of God, that gave enough time for events to transpire that would result in a countermand, a qualified countermand. It gave enough time for the Jews to prepare to defend themselves. And it gave enough time for the outworking of the preservation of the Jews. Here's the, uh, uh, the Jewish calendar. So here we are, uh, Nisan, the, the first uh, month on the Jewish calendar. And the 13th day, they're coming up with this decree. But, you know, the lot had fallen all the way here to the 12th month. So they got an entire year, basically, uh, to prepare for this thing. And so, again, it's going to be carried out on the single day, the 13th day of the 12th month. Well, verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued. Are you ready for this? As law, as law, in every province being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. This was to be made law of the land and was to be made known and published in every province, 127 of them, so the people of the entire empire would be ready to act as one man in carrying out this murderous decree on this 13th day of Adar. Uh, one commentary says this, by share of population, the largest empire in the history of the world has been the Persian Empire. He's talking percentage-wise here. Which accounted for approximately 49.4 million of the world's 112.4 million people around 480 B.C. Uh, an astonishing 44%. So they're saying the Persian Empire, as far as percentage of people, accounted for in, in the day, back in that day, 44% of the world's population lived in the Persian Empire. That's about half the world's population lived in the Persian Empire. That's a large empire. That's a, that's a, that's a mega, mega empire. In other words, about half the world's population by law was to be pitted against the Jews. Under Haman, under his conniving, you've got half the world's population now going to go after the Jews on a certain day and kill them. I mean, this is really quite fascinating. Look at the, the size of that kingdom. And of course, here's the capital. But, you know, on this certain day, in every prophet that's being published throughout the entire kingdom on this day, kill the Jews. It's kill the Jews day. And then you can have their possessions. They can be plundered. And it's kind of, it's kind of saying, well, man, the Jews have a head up. They're all going to leave. They're all going to leave. Well, I don't know where they're going exactly. Probably easier said than done. And uh, probably not easier, you know, if there's an edict and it's coming that, you know, we're going to kill you on a certain day. They're probably not just going to say, well, you can leave freely now. Either, probably not. And by the way, it's not easy to change the course of established law, even murderous law. Consider the issue of legalized abortion in our own country and how any rational, logical person could say it's okay to kill uh, an individual with a beating heart. Uh, how, how could you intellectually say such a thing? Well, in 1973, the United, States, the United States Supreme Court, in the case of Roe versus Wade, legalized abortion as a constitutional right. It's a law of the land. It's legal to kill babies. 
in the womb. Just don't do it outside the womb just yet. You know how hard it's been to change that law? Well, it's been so hard that up to this point it's been impossible. There are nearly about a million abortions performed, they're estimating here, uh, per year on average. And that's just the ones reported. Never mind that a child's heart scientifically beats at 21 days. It doesn't matter, you see, because it's legal. It's the law of the land. And when something becomes a law of the land, affirmed by the highest court in the land, it's very difficult to overcome that. Very difficult to overcome that. Now realize that what might seem possible in our country, even though it's kind of a stretch, it might seem somewhat possible in our country, seemed totally hopeless. That is the changing of this law in Persia. Where you had the law of the Persians and the Medes, which cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. That's why it's so crazy. This king on a whim is is saying, okay, yeah, make the decree. It's fine. I see the 10,000 talents of silver. It's all good. Go for it. Humanly speaking, this seemed like an insurmountable situation. Humanly speaking, it looked like the Jews are going to be killed off. It was a matter of the law of the Persians and the Medes, which could not be altered. But then there is this little... Sarcastic, little God factor. There's this little thing called providence. And when it plays out, God, not Haman, will have his way. I like this. Just because you don't see anything happening doesn't mean God's not working. You don't see everything that's going on. God's got a sovereign way in everything. Say, oh, it's terrible the days in which we live. You know, God's, it's not taking God by surprise. He didn't get up this morning, read the New York Times, say, oh, oh, oh. Nothing takes God by surprise. Verse 15. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command. Get it out there. We need, everybody needs to be in on this. Everybody needs to know. And the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, uh, Susa, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan, the the capital city, was perplexed. Notice the emphasis on the king's command, which drove everything. Irrational as it was, the couriers went out and began proclaiming this murderous edict, starting in Shushan, also called Susa, the citadel, meaning the capital fortress. And with this little business matter now handled, the king and Haman sat down to have a drink. Cheers. Cheers. They were so happy with themselves. This is a a good thing for the kingdom. These people need to be killed off. They're troublemakers. And the king's coffers are going to receive this large amount. It's going to be a really good deal. Uh, Let's drink to that. They're clueless. But happy. But in contrast, the capital city of Shushan was perplexed, meaning the whole city was confused, agitated, bothered, puzzled by this. You have to understand, there's a really sizable Jewish population everywhere, but especially in the capital city. And there was all kinds of relationships with these Jews. And the the general populace did not feel this way. Like, what? We're going to have to go kill our friends down here? 
they're, they're perplexed. When somebody in power makes a unilateral decision that is totally crazy, wicked, and irresponsible, even the general populace at times can see through that. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Who said that? Oh, yeah, I think that was Abraham Lincoln, wasn't it? I think this had a chilling effect on the entire capital city as the people couldn't make sense of this arbitrary decree that was so vicious. Even the little children, so vicious. And without any known rationale behind it. Why? Why? Irving Jensen says, sometimes the masses are wrong, but not always. Even the masses seem to be able to see through this craziness. But again, it was a situation that no one could do anything about. What can you do about leadership that's wicked and irresponsible and ruthless? What can you do about it? Well, there's always God. And you know what God specializes in? Impossible situations. And he was about to providentially do that for his people, Israel, in spite of themselves. Stay tuned. We're right mid-story. We'll pick it up there next time in chapter 4, so stay tuned. All right, let's uh, stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.